Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm your host, Janet Rodriguez, the office's administrative director. Today, we're talking about the complexities of diagnosing and treating Lyme disease with Dr. Andrew Heyman, the founding medical director of the GW Integrative Medicine Program. Dr. Heyman is an internationally recognized expert in integrative medicine and Lyme disease. He treats patients who have continuously been seeking treatment, some for months, others for years, but who have received no cure, no explanation, no answers. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Dr. Heyman. Thanks, Janet. Happy to be here. Why integrative medicine for Lyme disease? I think that's a good question. Um, Mostly because... um, I think as an integrative provider, we often are thinking um, not just in terms of what are the different sorts of clinical tools we can bring to bear to patients. And that's usually how the field is defined, that somehow we're offering therapies that are different than conventional, botanical, dietary supplement, nutritional, mind-body skills. It's a big basket, and it's sort of everything that I didn't learn in medical school. But if you look a little more closely at the mode of practice of integrative medicine, where I find the power to be, actually, is not so much in these um, unconventional and even esoteric tools at times. It's really more so, I think, um, a, a different way of understanding the patient. That because of the influence of traditional healing systems, and the ways in which we attempt to organize information, and even the types of questions that we ask of patients, we tend to come up with different sorts of answers. And so even migrating from a a primary care uh, practitioner mode more broadly into integrative medicine, it's forced me to um, connect the dots differently. And I think Lyme disease is just one of those topics that's well-suited for this sort of other way of knowing, asking more questions, listening really carefully, trying to connect the dots, because Lyme is incredibly elusive. And so to me, the the power of the integrative model um, was in some ways much better suited for uh, the challenge of, of Lyme disease in particular. You've become known as as one of the last resorts for Lyme disease patients, a last resort practitioner. How did that come about? It's a good question. I spent many years um, at the University of Michigan uh, undergoing my, my formal training in family medicine, my fellowship in integrative medicine. I stayed on as faculty. Uh, was uh, practicing in our integrative medicine clinic. And at that institution, um, you feel like you're learning everything you really need to know to be a complete practitioner, at least from a conventional perspective. And you also feel like um, you have a lot of answers um, and have seen many different kinds of patients. In addition to that, it's where I did a fair amount of my classical training in integrative medicine. So I felt that my toolkit was quite large. Um, Years later, I then moved to uh, Northern Virginia and ended up buying a private practice 
this was a few years before joining the faculty at, at George Washington University. And there was a distinct difference in the patients that I was seeing at this small clinic in the countryside in Virginia versus the type of patients that I was seeing at the big university. And what I was noticing was that these patients were very sick. They had many different types of symptoms. And the thing that was most frustrating to me was not only were they not responding well to um, the, the sorts of integrative therapies and, and, and general medicine uh, treatments that I was giving to them, but I also realized I didn't really fully understand what I was looking at. That many of the tests that I would do, conventional as well as sort of integrative, were just coming back normal. And therefore, the objective information was not consistent with what I was seeing um, symptomatically in this, in this population. And it was not an insignificant number of patients. There were too many. Uh, and, and they were coming in too often. And so I realized that um, I didn't fully understand what I was looking at. And this set me off on a journey of beginning to not only ask questions, but quite frankly, start collecting data because there was this growing suspicion that maybe they had Lyme disease. But when I went to the literature, the, the level of evidence, and I think the degree of our understanding of that illness in particular is still limited. And so we were running up against the boundary of what the current scientific knowledge was. So myself and, and some of my research colleagues just started collecting our own data. And what we found, uh, we thought was uh, pretty extraordinary. Uh, that in a portion of these patients, they definitely had Lyme disease. Uh, that was in part because of the wonderful work that uh, a research group had done at uh, George Mason University in the last few years. They had developed a better diagnostic tool for Lyme. So we were able to diagnose it with greater confidence. Um, so we were beginning to pick up on uh, what might be the underlying feature of why these patients were uh, presenting. And so we realized that this was, you know, one of these illnesses that quite frankly was actually difficult to diagnose. And as we learned more about the illness, we realized how difficult it is to treat and that it doesn't just resolve with uh, 30 days of, of doxycycline in uh, a, a number of uh, patients who acquire the illness. Why is Lyme disease so difficult to diagnose and treat? It's an excellent question. And it's one that we've had to contend with. And I think there are um, two big issues that, um, that underlie that question. The first is the way in which the infection behaves um, makes it very difficult for our standard tests to diagnose. If you look at um, how good uh, is the, what we call the two-tier testing, the ELISA and the Western blot, this is what every physician will typically order when they suspect Lyme disease, it's positive maybe 30 to 50% of the time. That we're missing up to 70% of patients who have Lyme disease. And there are a number of reasons why the standard testing is insufficient in that regard. Some of it has to do with 
the way uh, the microbe itself behaves in the body. Um, it has a very artful way of hiding in tissue. It can change its shape and go dormant. It can even alter the way our immune system functions so that we don't produce the antibodies to the Lyme infection the way we should. For all of those reasons, it's very good at escaping detection. It's a professional evader. It, it, it evades our immune system, and by virtue of that, it's very good at evading uh, the, the diagnosis through standard testing. Um, so it has a number of features or characteristics that make it very frustrating to detect. Now that's one category, and I think to some degree that's, that's well known, uh, and, and in fact, the, the growing belief is that Lyme is probably of epidemic proportion um, it's only getting worse, and we don't have great uh, diagnostic strategies at this point. In addition to that, um, when someone is bit by a tick, they're not just exposed to Borrelia, which is the bacteria of Lyme disease, but we like to say the tick is the dirty needle of nature, and that, in fact, the digestive tract of the tick also carries other pathogens, other microbes, that go along with the tick bite, go along with Borrelia. Borrelia brings friends and family, and the person is often infected with multiple microbes at the same time. And so that can also confuse the immune system and confuse the picture with respect to what this patient really has. These are some of the diagnostic challenges in terms of insufficient testing. We've tried to tackle some of that. Again, the George Mason University test, it's a urine-based test, I think is actually quite good. It's not perfect, but it's good. It's better than the standard. Uh, they're working their way through the process of making it more accepted uh, within the medical community. But here's the other key to Lyme, and this is something that is really underappreciated, and I think this is uh, part of what I would consider our breakthrough work uh, with understanding this illness is that even though Lyme disease creates what we would consider a multi-symptom, multi-system illness, it turns out that there are other types of biological exposures that can generate the same list of symptoms in the patient. That in fact, uh, there are, there's another group of individuals that look like Lyme disease, they have all of the same complaints, many of the same tests turn positive, but the secret is they don't have Lyme disease. And I think this gets into a, a, a notion and even a dearly held belief within a certain sub, sub-segment of practitioners who, when they, um, when they feel that they've made the diagnosis of Lyme, sometimes even in the absence of a positive test, they'll treat the patient for a Lyme disease. And or if they uh, diagnose Lyme disease and they treated the patient appropriately and the patient continues to have symptoms, there's a segment of practitioners that will continue to treat those patients because they're continually symptomatic. And the idea is that, well, if they still have symptoms, they must still be infected even though our tests are negative. What our research group says is, well, wait a minute. Are you sure this patient has Lyme disease? Are you sure they still have Lyme disease? Could it be something else that's masquerading as Lyme? 
One of the exposures that we found that is identical in the way that it presents by symptoms and almost identical in the way the body's immune system responds is mold exposure. And we didn't know that. When we dug deeper, we became even more fascinated and concerned that now we have this other type of exposure that's so common in, in people's environment, and it looks like Lyme disease, but it's not. And so we've had to broaden our model of how do we understand this illness? And so from my perspective, there are really three components that we have to address in these patients. Number one, what's the exposure? Is it Lyme? Is it mold? Is it both? Is it something else? So there are probably 30 different biological triggers that will turn on the person's immune system and generate a whole cascade of symptoms and complaints. And you can't tell what the individual has just based on how they feel. So you have to be very precise in your testing with respect to what am I looking at? The second piece, which was, uh, I, I think, really critical uh, for our work, was this uh, recognition that when you test people's immune systems for Lyme disease or, or um, you know, other underlying inflammatory conditions, the standard immune tests that I would typically run in clinic are almost always normal. And that's incredibly frustrating. People are, uh, are very sick and they have many different complaints. You'd expect some of these tests to come back abnormal and many don't. So we had to look at a certain part of the immune system that isn't often evaluated. And when we peered into what we call the innate immune response, these are a unique set of markers that um, are turned on in the setting of a Lyme infection. And that's where the magic happened. We could measure significant levels of inflammation and disruption to the individual's metabolism that acted like a metabolic fingerprint to say, not only uh, is this person sick, but now we can pair that with an objective reality. You cannot imagine how much relief patients feel when you can finally show them after years and years and years of misery, here are your abnormal labs. There's a, a huge um, emotional, uh, a huge emotional event that typically occurs because they've been suffering for so many years and uh, they really often don't feel like they have a good, uh, a good diagnosis or a good handle on why their body has really gone awry. The third piece, and then I'll, and I'll, then I'll stop because I think this is really important. If you listen to patients with Lyme disease, they often talk about um, cognitive impairment, brain fog, memory loss, depression, anxiety, sleeplessness, headaches, eye disturbances, ear ringing, swallowing difficulties. The list goes on and on. But if you, if you listen carefully, many of those, those symptoms are generated in the brain. And we 
had a growing concern that when you look at the type of inflammation that Lyme generates, we also understood that there had already been work done to show that that inflammation can get into the brain and even alter how the brain functions. So we started doing very special brain scans, MRIs, and the results astounded us. Our original hypothesis was that if Lyme and mold and other biological exposures trigger this sort of unified immune response, this, this, this cascade of inflammation, and the symptom list is generally the same, we thought if there were brain-related changes, that that would be uniform too. And that's not what we found. In these structural MRIs, which we call them neuroquant, the brain-related changes which were present were unique to the exposure, that we've actually published studies to show that there are specific changes in certain centers in the brain that relate back to the original uh, bi bio biological toxin. And so Lyme has a fingerprint on the brain, mold has a fingerprint on the brain, concussion and TBI has a fingerprint on the brain, stress has a fingerprint on the brain, they're all different. So we started to put this architecture together of what's the exposure, can I prove inflammation, and what's the damage or consequences, and the major one was to the brain itself. So this is all of the thinking that we needed to do to begin to pull these pieces together. It's not just about it, do I have Lyme disease and what antibiotics should I take? It is a much more complicated illness than that. And we've worked very hard to build this intellectual framework around uh, Lyme disease. And what we didn't expect is that it would lead down other trails to other types of exposures that would masquerade as Lyme. Now, knowing what you do about Lyme disease and your success in treating it, what do you think about the current guidelines um, and testing? If you kind of reflect on this model of what's the exposure, how inflamed is the individual, and what's the consequences, um, underneath that issue is, a, is a, a, another important concept. And the concept is about 20% of the population inherits gene sequences that if they become infected by Lyme disease, these genes turn on like light switches. They're called HLA, and they're important as, a, as a, uh, a function of normal immune activity. And if you're born with these gene sequences, it impairs the way the immune system behaves. And so what happens is the patients who have those genes, and again, it's 20% or 40 million people, if they happen to acquire a Lyme infection, these genes ignite and they tell the body to make inflammation and they continually uh, trigger that cascade of metabolic events. And what's so insidious about that is even if you make the diagnosis of Lyme, even if you appropriately treat with an antibiotic, these genes don't turn off in that 20%. And so the patient will remain sick and they'll remain symptomatic. And we know, and it's well described in the literature, 20% of people who are treated for Lyme disease don't ever recover, or it takes them years to recover. We think it's on these special gene sequences on chromosome six, these HLA, that's triggering this event. So 
for all of these reasons, it makes it very hard to diagnose and very hard to successfully treat Lyme patients because our tests are not very good. They're getting better. We also need to identify, is this someone in the 20% where even if I give them an antibiotic for 30 days, will they remain sick? And if they've been sick for long enough, do they have the brain-related changes that also have to be treated? We have to do all three. We have to clear the infection, turn off the inflammation, and heal the brain. So the current guidelines are only focused on standard diagnosis and typically 30 days of, of an antibiotic, and that's it. So the model is way too limited in terms of our understanding of what's happening. There is a fourth piece to this story too that we've recently published and we've been careful about collecting data. We're now looking down all the way at the genomic level. We've been able to measure how genes respond to the presence of the Lyme infection. And we have very clear data on uh, certain molecular pathways that are being triggered as a result of an active infection versus someone who's cleared the infection, but they're still sick because these gene sequences are still active, that they won't turn off. It's like leaving all the lights on in a building. And uh, there's this continuous cellular activity, regardless of whether or not the patient is still infected. This is a very tricky illness in that regard. You can have a patient who's infected, they're inflamed, they have brain-related changes, they even have an abnormal genomic response. So we have to deal with all of that clinically to be successful. We have to clear the infection, turn off the inflammation, heal the brain, and even restore normal genomic activity. And we just published a study about a year ago demonstrating just that, that with some very special therapies, we can even restore normal genomic response in this patient population. There are only two studies in the literature currently that have ever looked at gene activity in Lyme disease. One was published in Hopkins uh, through a Hopkins research group, and then we published one several months later uh, looking at that level of, of activity in the body. This is incredibly complicated stuff. Um, solving the issue of Lyme disease is not for the faint of heart. You really have to work through each of these issues to understand where is the patient and what do we need to do to get them better. So is Lyme disease curable? We think so. We do. Um, we, you know, I, I, I believe that the panic that the public feels when they've, when they've been told they have Lyme disease it is um, part and parcel to the chronicity of it. That once people are infected, there's a group that just remains sick. And this notion that once again, they're, they're continually ill because they're continually infected is probably quite wrongheaded because if it's an issue of persistent inflammation that's causing their symptoms, then that has to be dealt with. If it's an issue of brain-related changes that are causing symptoms, that has to be dealt with. If it's an issue of abnormal genomic response, that has to be dealt with. That this idea that people will remain sick 
because they're persistently infected is a very limited one. And so we have to be really clear with our patients about where we think we're at. Do we believe they're still infected? Do we have data to show that or not? And then also we need to look in those other pots. So we're, we're routinely measuring their inflammatory response. We capture the special brain MRIs to look at the brain-related changes. And in a very small group of patients, because it's quite expensive, we'll also run those genomic tests to see whether or not they're expressing that abnormal gene response in the way that we would expect. So the current model of diagnosis and treatment, I think, is limited. But, but I feel like we're getting closer and closer and closer to a cure, especially when we uh, published the study on, um, sh on showing that we can heal the damage to the brain and the other study showing that we can restore normal gene activity. To me, that's cure. We clear the infection, we turn off the inflammation, we heal the brain, and we're even able to restore normal genomic activity. So we're all the way down to the level of the, the blueprint of the body, the roadmap of how the body functions. When that goes back to normal, to me, that's a cure. And so that's the model that we apply in our patient population. I am more and more confident now than ever that that's possible. There are still many pieces though that we don't know, but we're getting closer and closer and closer than, than we ever were. All of these pieces are critically important for getting people back to normal. It's not just about clearing the infection. For many patients, that's a small part of their total health journey. And again, when you look at all the different therapies that we need to bring to bear to, to do this kind of work, I could not treat patients without my integrative toolkit. There are too many botanicals and dietary supplements and other unique compounds that we bring to bear uh, to restore normal metabolism. The answers are just not in the pharmaceutical uh, toolkit alone. Dr. Heyman, I can could listen to you talk about this topic forever, but <laughs> but I know you have patients to see, clinical research to do, and speeches to give. So um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Janet. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You're listening to the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast, brought to you by the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. Thanks for listening.